Oral questions by members. Member for Peace River South. Well, thank you, Mr. Uh, Speaker. Alexander Kilpatrick is in his last year of medical residency, and his wife is a middle school teacher who is pregnant with their third child. They want to set up a family medical practice right here in Victoria, but fear that they will have to leave town because they can no longer afford to live here. And I quote, it's scary looking at what the price points are for rentals and for owning a house here. Even for a family physician in the community, it's a bit scary to look at not just the rental market, but the longer term as well." End quote. So what does the finance minister have to say to this family? They're just trying to help address the doctor shortage. They want to stay here in Victoria. What is she going to do to help the Kilpatricks afford to live here? Minister of Finance. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker, and I appreciate uh, the member um, highlighting this, this particular uh, situation, and it's, it's one that we are certainly seeing uh, not just here in British Columbia, we're seeing it right across Canada, we're seeing it right around the globe. We are seeing uh, uh, people being uh, more and more challenged um, as we see the, um, the inflation rate continue to, um, to, uh, to rise. Uh, what I also want to say uh, to the member is that since 2017, we have been paying very particular attention on the housing file. Uh, we are continuing to uh, work with local governments to get more product. Uh, and, Mr. Speaker, we have brought forward uh, this $7 billion um, to build the kind of housing that British Columbians need. It's a 10-year plan. We have over 32,000 homes uh, right now being, uh, being built or, and being, uh, people have been moving in. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that important work. Member for Peace River South, supplemental. Well, thank you. Look, uh, the NDP might mean well, but that does nothing for the one in five British Columbians right now that don't have a family doctor. And here's somebody trying to help this situation. Housing's never been more unaffordable, and now even a doctor and a school teacher can't afford to live here. Yet, just this week, the Minister of Finance uh, admitted that not only were, will her cooling off period idea do nothing, absolutely nothing to address affordability, struggling home buyers actually might risk losing their down payment or deposit. So NDP fees and penalties will not help young first-time home buyers afford to get into a home. So when will the minister do actual constructive pro uh, issues to help people deliver on real solutions so that people like the Kilpatricks can afford to stay here, can afford to live in Victoria, and can afford to open up a family practice to help people. Minister of Finance. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, you know, I, I'm listening very carefully to the, the member's question, and, and we have certainly um, uh, inherited uh, a, a challenging um, um, housing situation. Uh, we've been, we have been here for a number of years working diligently on the housing file, which is why we brought forward $7 billion in our, our initially in 2017, and we were rolling out that kind of housing. But, Mr. Speaker, we've done more than that. We've started the housing hub. $2 billion is available for construction financing that is delivering thousands and thousands of, of homes for middle-income British Columbians. If the previous government had started on that track, Mr. Speaker, we wouldn't be in this situation right now, Mr. Speaker. I think, I 
think British Columbians, I think I do think British Columbians, Mr. Speaker, appreciate that building housing does take time. It doesn't happen overnight. We've been working diligently with local governments. We're continuing to look uh, to make progress on our collaboration with local governments to move more quickly. Here in Victoria, I have to give them a shout out. They are moving uh, and changing how they are um, um, uh, moving quickly to uh, allow certain kinds of housing to be built without it getting caught up. Uh, we're hearing other uh, local governments here on the island interested in, in, in following their lead. That's making a difference. It's through collaboration with local governments. It's with working with BC Housing. It's working uh, collectively with the development community. Um, and they're very excited about what we're doing at, at the Housing Hub. And there's more that's going to be coming online, Mr. Speaker, to help relieve some of this pressure. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Well, we've just heard how high rental costs and high inflation rates are, are impacting the ability to even open a family practice in Victoria. But now we also have a new report that says those same factors are going to dramatically impact low-income people in BC the most over this coming year and the next couple of years. The average household this year will be facing an extra $2,000 a year in interest payments as interest rates start to rise. It has now been a week since the Premier said he had directed the Finance Minister to, and I quote, bring forward initiatives to assist with inflation. We'll see how that goes, end quote. Well, the people would like to know, what are these new initiatives? Will they offset the new $2,000 a year that are going to impact people's home? And when will the public actually see these initiatives? Minister of Finance. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Well, we've been um, at uh, reducing costs for average British Columbians uh, since 2017, Mr. Speaker. This isn't a new um, actions for us. We have been at it since we formed government. And we started uh, with uh, eliminating MSP. Remember that regressive tax that the folks on the other side doubled? The other thing we did, uh, Mr. Speaker, is we brought forward the Child Opportunity Benefit. That's up to $2,600 a year for a family with two children. And that's making a difference for British Columbians every day. Mr. Speaker, we've lowered car insurance. Remember that dumpster fire that the other, the other folks set on fire? We, we took care of that, Mr. Speaker. And we not only uh, have we been able to give several rebates because it's been fixed, but people are paying on average $500 a year less on their, on their car insurance. Free transit for children, Mr. Speaker. Free transit for children. And again, that's uh, saving up to $650 a year for British Columbians. Um, and, uh, Mr. Speaker, we reduce childcare costs. And, that's, uh, and by cutting fees by 50% by the end of this year for those children under the age of five, that is a huge, huge savings for British Columbians. Member for Kamloops North Thompson, supplemental. Thank you. Well, the minister fails to point out that since 2017, we now have well over 50% of the population of BC with less than $200 at the end of the month to pay their bills. And that's because the cost of living continues to skyrocket each and every month with inflation at its highest level in over 30 years. Everything is costing more. Gas, rent, groceries, and the NDP have done absolutely nothing. And now we know that extra $200 a month is going to be wiped out with this extra cost, yearly cost, in the new report. And this is what the report says, and I quote, the bottom line is low-income Canadians will be most squeezed by rate and price hikes, a burden that will only grow heavier into 2023, 
end quote. These people are trying to pay bills today. They're trying to pay bills into 2023. Is the minister going to reveal what initiatives she's been directed to undertake by the Premier to address inflation, or is she going to continue to let low-income families suffer? Finance. Well, Mr. Speaker, I have okay. to say it's it's sort of surprising to hear the folks on the other side talk about low-income families when they when they kept minimum wage from growing, when they refused even the senior supplement. They did nothing with it, Mr. Speaker, for years. We've doubled it. We've increased uh, um, social assistance rates. But I, I have to say, Mr. Speaker, um, and the members opposite know these are global challenges. It's not just here in BC, it's across Canada, it's around the world, there's significant supply chain issues. And, 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 and yes, Mr. Speaker, we are concerned about how it's affecting people here in British Columbia. There's no doubt about it. There is concern about the rising cost of necessities for like, like um, food and housing. And we know that it's hardest on people who are already struggling to make ends meet. Of the members opposite also know full well that the federal government and the Bank of Canada have the tools to impact inflation directly. But we're going to keep doing what we can in order to help reduce costs for British Columbians. Member for Standish North and Islands. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, this BC NDP government hopes that uh, corporations like TELUS will step in and fix the uh, growing uh, primary health care crisis through their um, efforts that they frame as social capitalism, uh, really just uh, profiteering from the delivery of health care. Now let's look at another uh, crisis that's facing British Columbians, housing. Uh, renters are suffering. BC has the highest rents uh, in Canada. In Vancouver and Victoria, rent has jumped uh, 20% in the last six months. There's not enough supply and what uh, is available is uh, excruciatingly expensive. I was stunned to find an article uh, that assured me that if I can't afford housing, I should just uh, buy into a REIT. Now, a REIT stands for a Real Estate Investment Trust. It's a corporation that owns and operates, quote, income-producing real estate, end quote. Articles pumping REITs state that shareholders can have all the profits of being a landlord without any of the inconveniences, inconveniences such as, quote, hard-to-please tenants, end quote. And here's a kicker. Investors who purchased Canadian residential REITs since 2012 have received a 220% return. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Housing, real estate investment trusts are generating huge returns for their shareholders by financializing our housing stock, making housing more and more unaffordable. What is this government doing to remedy this problem? Attorney General. Uh, thank you, thank you Honourable Speaker. And, uh, and thank you to the member for raising this important issue. We've seen uh, really escalated REIT activity in the CRD, uh, in the Victoria area, and we expect to see that uh, accelerating in different parts of the province. REITs have unfair tax benefits that other British Columbians don't enjoy when it comes to buying housing. Uh, these are tax benefits that are provided by the federal government. I've expressed my concern directly to the federal housing minister about this issue. He says that the federal government is going to be addressing that issue, and I encourage them to do it quickly. Uh, uh, the financialization of our housing market, we know where that goes. We've seen it in 2008 in the United States uh, when uh, investment in housing gets out of hand and it's not adequately policed. 
uh, what we need to be investing is, in is in the building of affordable housing, which is what our government is doing, and we can't have it undermined by federal tax benefits for, uh, for these investment vehicles uh, that make life less affordable for British Columbians. Member for Sandwich North Island, supplemental. It becomes uh, problematic, Mr. Speaker, when uh, we're building more housing supply, and yet that housing supply is vulnerable to corporations purchasing it and uh, driving uh, the cost of rent up for British Columbians. Researchers at the University of Waterloo estimate that uh, between 20 to 30 percent of uh, Canada's rental apartment market is owned by institutional landlords, REITs. They own nearly 200,000 rental units uh, in uh, countrywide. Uh, B CBC's uh, Fifth Estate reported on the devastating impact that REITs are having uh, for renters. Uh, this was, there was story after story of people losing their homes uh, due to these corporations buying aging apartment blocks and renovating them. Uh, one quote stuck with me, and it uh, goes back to the so-called social capitalism that I raised yesterday in question period and this morning. Michael Brooks, CEO of RealPAC, an association representing the largest institutional landlords across the country was willing to be more honest about what the business model actually is. Quote, everyone in the private sector is self-interested in maintaining and growing their income, and they all want to be seen as contributing to the solution and not being part of the problem. However, they've got their own obligations. They've got their own investors, their own pensioners to fund. They've got to manage costs. Deeply affordable housing is a public good. The private sector is not primarily in the business of providing a public good. Through you, Honourable Speaker, uh, to the Minister of Housing, uh, it is one step to, uh, to talk to the federal government about changing the tax laws. What is this provincial government doing with the authorities that we have to ensure that REITs, as the Minister said, do not continue to buy up rental blocks here in the, the Greater Victoria area, the capital region, the lower mainland and across British Columbia. Minister of Housing. Uh, thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. This, uh, in, in his preamble, the member made a number of assertions about the Minister of Health and, uh, and TELUS. I just want to remind the member and all members of this House uh, that the Minister of Health has been uh, on the front lines of ensuring our public health care system is protected from profiteering. Uh, he's been a champion. He's brought into uh, force uh, rules around uh, private uh, delivery of health care and charging additional fees that were not enforced before. I just wanted to address that issue. I, I couldn't agree more with the member's concern about uh, speculation uh, financialization of our housing market, um, and, uh, it, and it also complicates our job uh, at the provincial level when we're looking at partnering. Uh, part of my mandate letter uh, is to work with the nonprofit housing associations to find opportunities to acquire uh, privately owned uh, rental housing uh, and to uh, ensure affordability and where it uh, and where it needs to be redeveloped. That it's redeveloped in a way that protects tenants uh, and increases the number of units available on sites. That makes it harder for the province when we're competing with uh, money from around the world. We started this conversation uh, in 2016 around international money coming into our housing market. I know uh, the opposition at the time uh, was concerned about it. They seem less uh, interested now about speculation in the housing market than they used to be. But we remain concerned about it, and it's not just international money uh, coming in through individual buyers. It's money from across North America through REITs. We need the federal government to step up on this, and we will continue to pressure them. But we're also putting in place rules that landlords that operate in BC, whether they're REITs or anyone else, 
uh, restricting their ability to evict people for uh, rent evictions, dem evictions. We put an enforcement team in place of the residential tenancy branch to ensure the rules are followed, and we will keep doing that work to protect tenants. Member for Surrey White Rock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. BC Autism Advocacy has asked parents to describe how they felt about the NDP's consultation on the autism uh, funding clawback. And I quote, the most commonly submitted response from our survey about how parents and service providers felt about the information being given was traumatizing. And the most commonly referred to word regarding your small table discussions was gaslighting, end quote. So instead of gaslighting service providers, caregivers and parents, will this minister actually listen to families and stop this clawback? Minister for Family and Children Development. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And it is very important to be listening to families, Honourable Speaker. I've been hearing from families for many years now, my ministry has for many years, that so many children have been left behind for too long. So we started uh, formal engagement across the province in 2019. We've continued that ever since, and we are continuing to speak to families, and we will continue to engage with them and to work in partnership with families of all children and youth with support needs, and with service providers, and with community agencies, and with communities, and with Indigenous partners as well, Honourable Speaker. We are absolutely committed to working with everybody to make sure that we get this transformation right. We know that we need to build a system based on needs of children and youth across this province. And we need to be doing that to ensure that all children and youth with support needs across that diverse community are able to thrive. Sorry, White Rock, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Parents have been trying to meet with this NDP government for six months, and this minister has not been listening. And in fact, parents will be going to protest NDP offices tomorrow. And I'll read another quote. Without withholding information and not providing answers to our questions provides further damage, unnecessary stress, and anxiety on families, caregivers, parents, and children." End quote. When will this minister stop with the games and actually start listening to the families, to the parents of these children and end this clawback? Minister of Children and Family Development. Oh, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the question. Uh, we have been meeting with families, Honourable Speaker. We've been, meet, we've been hearing from families um, for years, telling us that for far too long, too many children have been left behind. Um, and we've done engagement with families. There's a survey that's open at the moment, Honourable Speaker, in five different languages. We're finding different ways to engage with families and to listen to them. And we'll continue to do that, Honourable Speaker. Um, I will be um, making sure that, um, that um, I'm available to speak to families and I know that my staff has done so as well. I've continued to meet with advocacy groups and service groups um, over the last 18 months since I, I have the honour of being in this position. Um, we need to make sure that we're getting the system right. So we also have further opportunities because the provincial rollout is in two years, Honourable Speaker, and so uh, we will be 
implementing early implementation areas, and that will give us further opportunity to engage with families and with service providers and with indigenous communities and with community agencies and other partners to make sure that we are learning and that we are able to build a successful um, implementation of this new system. We need to deliver a system of services based on need so that children are not left behind, they're able to meet their goals and milestones, and they're able to fulfill their potential. Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. And even in this legislature today, the minister did not listen to the words of parents. The words that parents used regarding this process is that they feel traumatized. It's a very serious word. And that gaslighting is taking place. The minister needs to engage in a meaningful way with parents of children with autism. But today I also want to raise another issue with this minister, a heartbreaking, horrific, tragic situation. 17-year-old Trayvon Chalifaux Desjardins died on September the 18th, 2020, in a government-contracted care home. It took four days, four days, for Trayvon to be found in the closet. I'm not asking about the specific details of this horrific situation. But British Columbians do deserve detailed answers about this government's lack of oversight of contracted services. To the minister, what specific changes have been implemented to ensure that this type of horrific tragedy never happens again? Minister of Children and Family Development. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question, and I agree this is a tragic situation. My heart goes out to the family, and I send my condolences to everybody who knew this young man. Um, and as the member acknowledges, it's not possible for me to speak on particular situations of a, of a unique individual. However, I can assure the member and this House that whenever a tragedy like this happens, the Ministry does conduct a review um, and our goal is always to make sure that children and youth are kept safe and are kept healthy. When there is a review, if there are deficiencies, then an action plan is created and that is monitored very closely by the Provincial Director of Child Welfare. Our aim is to make sure that all children and youth are able to um, stay safe and well cared for and healthy in our care. Leader of the Official Opposition, Supplemental. Well, thank you very much. And to the Minister, time is of the essence. It is incomprehensible to imagine how a family must feel when a 17-year-old is found dead in a closet. There have been reports this week that those charged with looking after Trayvon were verbally abusive, neglectful, and that he was often left alone in a small bedroom for days at a time. Cook P. Judy Wilson of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs says, and I quote, there were warning signs 
the failing audits. The ministry should have intervened with that agency and got things back on track. Those red flags were there. They could have saved his life if they intervened earlier." End quote. So again, to the minister, I understand the process of review, but I also understand a 17-year-old young man was found dead in a contracted care home. That requires action now. What specific steps has the ministry taken or put in place to ensure that there is protection in place for British Columbia's most vulnerable children? Minister. Oh, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the, for the question, because this is absolutely critical. It's very important that children and youth who are in our care uh, receive the best care and are nurtured and supported uh, to fulfil their potential, and that they're safe and that they're healthy. Uh, we've known for many years that the system of in-care services has not been adequate, that we need to make sure that we transform the system so that when children and youth do come into the care system, that they actually receive in-care services that meet their needs, um, that are designed to meet and, and respond to why they've come into care and be able to um, help them achieve their goals and help them to create a future for themselves that is healthy and that is safe. We've been working with our partners. We're going to transform the system across the whole of the province. And uh, we're making sure that changes are considered um, and that all services delivered are putting the child and youth at the centre of their care. We're making sure that all children and youth stay connected to their family, to their community and to their culture and making sure that we minim minimise any disruption in, our, in the system because we're continuing to care for vulnerable children and youth while we're making this significant provincial change. Thank you. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, reviews are too late and actions are overdue. This minister continues to have the same answer regardless of what the question is. Of course we want to have children at the centre, but this is about a systemic failure in the child welfare system under this government. The independent representative for children and youth says what happened to Trayvon is a canary in the coal mine and that things are worse than ever. And I will quote her, we hear from youth living in group homes all the time, including where perpetrators of sexual abuse are housed with victims of sexual abuse. This is a system that continues to fail them. Can the minister tell the House why this system, after all the warnings and all the reports, why this system continues to fail these vulnerable children? Minister. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And uh, it is really important to make sure that the system serves our vulnerable children and youth. We know that children and youth who are in the care system have been traumatized uh, for some reason, and we want to make sure that we put them at the center and we provide them with uh, trauma-informed, nurturing, caring support and help launch them into a successful future where they're able to thrive. 
We know that challenges with the um, in-care system have been building up over decades. Uh, this is something that I know that the representative for children and youth has worked on in, in prior roles that she's had, and so have I. Uh, and now we have made considerable improvements over the last uh, three years, and we are, we are undertaking a provincial transformation that will make a difference to the lives of children and youth because the, the, the um, home that they will be provided with, the care that they will be provided with, will actually be responsive to their needs. Um, and what we're doing is making sure that there are no new ag agencies added to the list of homes um, without the explicit approval of the Provincial Director of Child Welfare. We've taken steps and measures in terms of ensuring the quality in all of the homes that provide in-care services. And, uh, and we're also really working very hard on making sure that children and youth are able to stay within family, within community. So we've been increasing out-of-care placements, so um, where a significant action has been taken in relation to a child or youth, we've actually been able to go to their community and say, is there an auntie, is there a grandma, is there a friend of the family uh, who's able to take care of this young person while we build a safety plan? So we are uh, making a difference in the lives of children and youth. Thank you, Speaker. Opposition House Leader. Well, the 2019 uh, government response uh, to the Auditor General report highlighted a review uh, by Ernst & Young related to contracted care homes. Uh, yet I have here uh, a briefing note dated uh, January 10, 2020 for the Minister that says that there has been a lack of progress because, quote, the Ernst & Young contract was cancelled, was cancelled due to the recent expenditure management initiative, end quote. Mr. Speaker, later that year, Trayvon died in a government-contracted care home. Now, the government response to the Auditor General report also said this, and I quote, as of June 2019, social workers have confirmed that each child and youth has been seen and their homes visited within the past three months as required by policy, end quote. Yet, here we have an audit copy of an audit that was conducted between October 2018 to July 2019 that proves that that simply was not true and that the government is actually failing to meet even this basic standard. Page 23 of the audit says, and I quote, the compliance rate for this measure was 7%, 7%, end quote. 30% of the time, there was actually zero contact for 12 months which is in complete violation of the policy. So my question uh, to the minister would be this. Uh, can she tell this House and tell British Columbians why this Ernst & Young contract was cancelled in the first place? And can she explain how this government would allow, how she would allow, how her ministry would allow a 7% compliance rate when it comes to vulnerable children? 
Minister of Children and Family Development. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you for the question. And I can reassure this House that work has continued, Honourable Speaker. We're working with partners. We're working with um, youth organisations who represent children and youth who have been in care uh, to make sure that we do continue this transformation of the in-care system. And this work has already started, Honourable Speaker, and it will continue, as I said. We're continuing to care for vulnerable children and youth, so we need to do this in an incremental way. And we're building services and working with the sector, working with partner agencies to make sure that when a child has to come into care, that they're brought into a home that's meeting their needs and that the needs of that child and youth are, are actually put first in that placement. Another transformation that my ministry is undertaking is with regard to the quality assurance system. Honourable Speaker, we know what we need to be doing is monitoring outcomes and not looking at statistics and numbers and compliance. What is really important to us as a ministry is that we see that children are safe, that they're developing, that they're thriving, uh, that their well-being is, is secured, that they're connected to family and community and culture, that their cultural needs and spiritual needs are met. And that's what we're doing, Honourable Speaker. So we are actually redesigning our tools of how we evaluate services that are delivered to children and youth. So we're focusing on those outcomes for those children and youth and that we're able to launch them. If they have had to come into the care system, we can launch them into brighter and better futures. Thank you. The bell ends question period.